Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach. Always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're Reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week. He says, Thank you. Thank you for being available for me day or night because I listen to your podcast whenever I can get it in. And I just wanted to thank you for that. Hey, I say this is what it's all about. I am Carol the Coach, a.k.a. Carol Jurgensen Sheets. This is Sex Help with Carol the Coach. And guess what? This is a show about sexual addiction and partner betrayal. And we talk about anything here on the show. That's the good news is that it really matters not what kind of an addiction you have, what, it, what matters, the help that you need. And boy, is that important. You know, I do get emails from all over the world, and I just got one tonight. She says, hey, Carol, my husband has had a relapse. We've been in recovery since 1999. Okay, guys, that's 19 years. He called your show several months ago. This is his third relapse since 1999, and he has been going to groups and counseling, etc. For the last two and a half years, he has been looking at porn on his work computer at home and at work. He started seeing a CSAT, that's a certified sexual addiction therapist, per your recommendation and confessed to her. He is working the Out of the Shadows workbook by Patrick Carnes. Okay, that's a great workbook. It's the basics for people that are just really wanting to get skinny on what they need to be doing. Again, that's Out of the Shadows. It's a workbook by Patrick Carnes. She says, I'm trying to decide if I should stay in the marriage. 
In the meantime, we're doing an in-house separation. Part of my boundaries feel safe for him and part of them don't. I want a polygraph. Can you recommend somebody in? And then she gives the state. And I got to tell you, I can't recommend, I can recommend Mike Turk, and that's out of the Indianapolis area. And he would more than likely, if you go to michael.turk.com, he will probably let you know of people that he believes are reputable in your city. This woman says, hey, I have listened to your podcast, and now I listen to Betrayal Talk Radio. Well, what she's really talking about is that we just started another betrayal program for partners specifically, and it's called Betrayal Recovery Radio, and it's through Blog Talk, and it's on Thursdays at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But, you know, one of the beautiful things about podcasts is you don't have to listen at the time. You can just go to iTunes, subscribe for free, or go to Blog Talk, subscribe for free, and it's downloaded to your computer, and then you can put it on an MP3, you can put it on a disc, you can listen to it on your specific computer time you want. She says, both have been very helpful, and I sure do know that you really believe in polygraphs. Well, you know, I really do believe in polygraphs, and here's why. I mean, I had just talked with a man about three weeks ago who had professed that he was doing really well, and he has been. But it wasn't until the polygraph that he admitted that he had been looking at some images. Oh, yeah, it was only three, four, five seconds at a time, and that's That is not a relapse. That's a slip. But the bottom line is, if he continues to create and design that behavior, he will eventually go back to old behaviors. And this was a man that was a voyeur, an exhibitionist. Um, He had molested his two children. I mean, he had had a lot of issues in the past past. And so there's no... There is no guarantee that slips don't lead to full-fledged relapse. And that's what I want you to know. So, yes, I believe in polygraphs because polygraphs keep addicts honest. Polygraphs help that process of disclosure. When you're doing a disclosure, you should never do a disclosure unless it's followed with a polygraph. Because, you know, an addict will tell you, what is denial? Well, I don't even know. I am lying to myself, let alone you. I mean, they forget the frequency and the intensity. They think it's just this or that. So, yes, I am a big, big, big proponent. If you want somebody good in your area as a polygrapher, here's what I would recommend you do. I would either go to two different websites with professionals. I would go to ITAP. No, no, no. I'm so sorry. ITAP is the organization that certifies sexual addiction therapists. But I would go to sexhelp.com, and I would look up somebody close to your area. 
And then I would give them a call and say, who should I use for a polygrapher? Because a CSAT will know. That's a certified sexual addiction therapist. And if not, or in addition, you want to go to appsats.org because that's our partner-sensitive training program that helps coaches and clinicians figure out what it is they need to do to make the partner feel safe. They, too, typically have people in their area that are trained in sexual addiction, and these polygraphers will know how to ask the right questions. Now, I just talked to a woman. I've actually been working with her for quite a while, and she was wanting a polygrapher. She had come to Indiana from another state, had done the disclosure with me, and then had been tested by by my polygrapher. And so she wanted somebody closer to home. She lived about four states away. And her husband was given the task of finding a polygrapher. So he asked a couple of his buddies, and his buddies recommended somebody. And the bad news was that this polygrapher charged $800. Oh, I'm probably not supposed to tell you the price. $800 for one question. Whereas my polygrapher here in Indy charges $250 for five. Whereas in California, I have a couple of people that I work with. They charge twelve hundred for set price is all over the board. And you know, you definitely want to get a good deal, but you also want to find somebody who's trained, who understands sex addiction, who is partner sensitive, who's going to meet with the partner as well as the addict and make both of them feel very, very comfortable. Okay, that is my recommendation. You know, again, what I really know to be true is that it's important to find somebody that you are comfortable with. All right. So, now I'm going to ask you, what do you need comfortable in your own recovery or with your own spouse who may be in recovery? That's kind of an important question to ask yourself. And so often when I'm working with addicts, they are doing great work on their recovery. And so my job is to absolutely positively help them with developing their relational recovery. You know, you've got sex addiction recovery, which is all about the addicts. Then you got relational recovery, which is about restoring that relationship. And I can't emphasize if they're both not being um, developed, improved, then we got a problem. Because the old traditional model said, hey, just do your own recovery and let her do hers and We'll get back together in a couple of years. But that is not recovery these days. These days it involves working with the partner and working on your own recovery simultaneously. And that is so important 
for healthy recovery. Because as an addict, your recovery is not just about you. You've damaged the relationship. Now let's get working on what it will take to improve the sense of safety, honesty, and transparency in your relationship. Now you may wonder, who am I working with tonight? Well, I have got David Estel on, and he is going to be talking about trauma reenactment and how sex addiction oftentimes is a result of trauma in childhood. And that trauma is incest. And so we're going to be talking about incest and how that may contribute to compulsive problematic sexual behavior. And he specifically is a life coach and a counselor and an international speaker whose mission is to help people actualize their potential. He actually wrote a book, it's a bestseller called Focus, Lay Your Goal, A Proven Guide to Huge, Powerful Attitude and Profound Love. So his whole spin is on relationships. But tonight, he's going to be talking about incest. He's going to be talking about who causes incestual relationships, what type of a person is most likely to initiate this type of fractured relationship, and what you should do if a family member initiates, you know, that kind of incest. He's going to share stories from his 30 years of work as a counselor and a life coach, and he's going to talk about how do you heal from incest. You know, before I did this work, I actually ran a program that kept families together even though they were experiencing incest. And I wanted to tell you that with good boundaries and healthy adults working on keeping their children safe, hey, we can get through that crisis, move beyond it, and keep the family together if that's what you desire. And so I'll be interested in seeing what he has to say because truly that was my mission. It wasn't to split the families up, divide them, put kids in foster care. I mean, come on now. How fair is that to children? They get removed from their own place of safety. That's not fair at all. What's fair is that we figure out how to help the family structure get through the incestuous experience, grow stronger from it, have better boundaries, and uh, reunite in a new and improved way. So I want to welcome David Essel to the show. David, it is so nice to talk with you again. Oh, my gosh, Dr. Carroll, great to be back with you. Thank you. And, boy, this is a heavy-duty topic. And you have been working with incest for over 30 years. Tell me a little bit about how you got involved in this topic. You know, Carol, it was um, not necessarily by choice, which is what happens, I think, a lot of times in the world of counseling and life coaching. I had a client come in, and she was very overweight. And she had told me that she wanted to work on her weight, and she had struggled for years, over 20 years, with her weight issues. And in our weight loss program, you know, we we teach people down the road correct nutrition and exercise, but a lot of people know that already. So 
we look for what are the emotional causes of overeating and and, and what are the, the psychological reasons that someone may want to carry excess weight. And I would say it was about four weeks into working together that in asking her the emotional reasons she ate, we got to this core that she didn't want to be attracted to men and she didn't want men attracted to her. And so as we continue to burrow down and go to the core of all this, it got very interesting for me, Carol, because this was the first time I had worked actually with an incest victim. And so she started talking about how she didn't want to replay her childhood and she didn't want to replay relationships with boys and men that she had in childhood. And all of a sudden, three months into it, we get to the holy grail of it for her and that was that she had been in a 10-year incestuous relationship with her father. And when she was finally, and this was from a, the age of 11 to 21, and from that moment at 21, when she finally broke off all contact, she had been slowly gaining weight. And then from 21 to about 40, when I started working with her, she was probably 150 pounds overweight. So we got to that mm. core of it, and, and, and when we found, and this is what we find with a lot of cases with incest that I've worked with, and there's three cases that, you know, we may be able to talk about tonight, and all three are very different. But the, the negative ramifications, as you well know, emotionally, psychologically, relationship-wise, addiction, self-esteem, shame, guilt, low self-confidence, I mean, it is such a horrendous example of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. When someone has an incestuous relationship at any level with someone, a family member, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, etc., is that unless they do some really deep, intense work with professionals, the odds of working through this, Carol, are so minimal. But if they can find the right people to work with, we can break through and we can help them to forgive themselves for any role that they think they may have played. But the toughest part is getting that work done to forgive the perpetrator, which is extremely difficult but possible to do. Oh, absolutely. And actually, I find there is a great deal of grace and forgiveness for incest from the survivor or victim of incest. And so how did you help this woman work through her issues? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting when we think of the word incest, of course, the very first thing people think of is penetration, you know, vaginal penetration by, and let's just make it uh, stereotypical, it's usually an older adult male, the father or a brother, uh, with a younger sister, a, a father with a daughter. Those are traditionally the two most common forms. Um, but it isn't always penetration. And I, I think that that's important, that it isn't always vaginal penetration. There can be all kinds of other, um, even just outrageous close contact, sleeping together without clothes on, um, rubbing against each other. There's, there's just, there are these events that occur in an incestuous relationship not always vaginal penetration that can just linger forever. Well, we created this four-step process. And the very first step, Carol, and, and we use this with all PTSD clients, 
Um, and even when we look at people that have been cheated upon in relationships or mentally or physically abused in relationships, stolen from in relationships, betrayed, I think that's probably the, the greatest word that I'd like to get to your listeners is that any kind of betrayal and an incestuous betrayal is one of the most difficult and the deepest to overcome. But step one, and this is what I use with the first client I'm going to share, the one who had gained 150 pounds and hadn't really worked on this issue for 20 years, is that we got her, as well as my other clients, to do intense writings about their anger, their rage at the perpetrator, um, they, we, we, we talk down the road about any shame and guilt they carry, but the very first thing we try to get them in contact with is the resentment, the rage, the anger. And when you do this in writing, we do it actually in letters to the perpetrator. So in this case, the very first case, you know, that she was writing, Dear Dad. And then we had her go. Now, the, what I'm going to say next for your listeners is don't do this on your own. Make sure you have a professional guiding you, and I'll explain a little bit more here. You can try to do these exercises, but, you know, a lot of times people will, um, I call it cross-pollinate, is that they'll jump from one of the four steps to the other without even knowing it. So step one would be to write, Dear Dad, you know, I am so outrageously angered or I'm filled with rage because you did this. And then, Carol, this is where it gets difficult. We have them, with our guidance, write about the specific instances and the acts of incest that were done against them, and we have them write them over and over and over in these letters until they reach a state that we term desensitization. And what that means is, is that now that act has become a fact free of emotion. I use the same exercise with rape victims as we do with incest victims. In other words, we want them to expel, to, to emotionally and physically vomit the rage, the anger, the disgust that they have at this person for the betrayal and for the act. And what we found is if it's done in specifics, we can get to the core and we can get them to release the anger, rage, resentment, etc. Then they can move on to the stage which is so difficult, and that is forgiveness. In the second stage, they take the same examples that they wrote about their rage, their anger, their resentment, and they say, as this example is, dear dad, you know, I forgive you for when you pinned me up against the car in the garage when mom was gone and did X. So the same thing that she had written three or four weeks before about I am so outrageously angry at you for pinning me against the car and doing this hideous act. When they've worked through their anger and they reached this whole desensitization, which means they come in and they go, you know, David, I'm actually kind of bored with writing about these acts that my dad did. Then we take them into forgiveness. But the only way we know, Carol, in our work, that someone has worked through forgiveness is when they forgive in writing for the very same hideous betrayal acts that they wrote about with anger. If they can write that out and really truly feel the forgiveness coming through, we have them move forward. But what oftentimes happens with incest victims and rape victims 
is that they think they're ready to do the forgiveness writing. And as they start that process and they say, Dad, I forgive you for pending me against the car, and then they just stop. And they can't write anymore because they haven't worked through the anger at the level they need to. So we go back to step one, and they may write for another two, four, six, eight, ten days about their anger. And then we bring them again to the forgiveness part. And, and in the case of the, the, the woman I was talking about whose father molested her from age 11 to 21, one of the most amazing stories that I can share with you and your audience is as we took her through these stages and she got to this. Now, this was a year's worth of work, so I want to make this point very clear. This young yeah, woman wasn't overnight. worked with me. It was a whole year. Exactly, Carol. It was 52 straight weeks for her to get to forgiveness. And I don't know how we describe what happened next, but it, it, you know, I'm getting chills right now, so I can tell you it was just an out-of-this-world experience. Two weeks after we were done, 52 weeks after working with her, you know, and she started to shed the weight. She really had come to this amazing state of grace, I call it, this ability to forgive her father for these 10 years of incest and betrayal, two weeks when we were done, she got a call from her mother. Now, I will tell you, over 20 years, she had chosen not to go home and ever be alone with her father. And she would tell her mom, I'll come home for Christmas, but I'm staying in a hotel room. I'll come over and eat with you guys, but I'm not hanging around the house. Now, the mother knew what had happened, but she never intervened. She never chastised. She never went to the law. She never did anything against her husband. So the daughter calls me two weeks after we're done. And she says, I had a call tonight from my mom and I'm wondering what I should do. And I said, go ahead and explain what's, what's going on. And she said, my, my father's in the hospital and they say he has two days left to live. And my mother wants me out there, and I'm just calling to get your opinion. And, you know, Carol, in this situation, I have no opinion. And all I said back to her was, I want you to do what you feel is best for you. And if that means you go, go. And if it means that that doesn't feel right, even after all this work we've done, I'm going to honor that choice. If you go, I support you, and I'll be by the phone. You need me while you're gone. Contact me. If you choose to stay, I really want you to stay without guilt. So she said she was going to write about it, which I thought was brilliant. A couple hours later, she calls me back, and she says, you know, David, I'm strong enough to go. And this is where it gets so incredible, Carol. She goes into the hospital room. And all the family members were surrounding the father in the bed, and she could tell that he was laboring his breath. And he turned to see her at the doorway, and tears started to come down his face. Now, everyone in the hospital room was shocked because he was basically almost comatose. He had not spoken for several days. He had shown no emotion. They knew he was conscious. But all of a sudden, these tears are flowing down. And she walked over to her father. And I even get emotional thinking about this. And she leans down, kisses him on the forehead. 
and says, I'm here to say goodbye, Dad. And he looks up at her and he mouths, I am so sorry. Oh, More wow. tears That's came. amazing. It, it was amazing. More tears came to her father's eyes, and then he instantly passed away. Very few people get that opportunity to receive a restitution, if you will, an admission of guilt, uh, an apology from the perpetrator. And at the same time, I really encourage that a man or a woman, whoever has been abused, Write and request that because more often times than not, if they request it, they're more likely to get it. If they wait for it to happen on its own, it doesn't. So here is a woman who knew that she, well, she felt like she should go and and visit yeah. with her father. Wow. Yeah, and you know, if she would have said to me, "I'm not going to go," it, you know, I, I'm I, I'm I'm past it. I've done the work. There's no need for me to go. I would have supported her as long as there was no guilt involved. As long as she did, you know, wasn't going to feel guilty, I would have supported her not to go. But you know, she was very a very very strong centered woman after this year of work, and you know, she called me from you know it was on the other coast, and she called me and explained everything that happened and. She, you know, Carol, it was amazing. When we do this really deep, intense work of forgiveness, and it's valid forgiveness, you know, like turning the other cheek and forgiving someone because it's the right thing to do is never going to work long term. You have to do a heck of a lot more work than that. But I see these survivors become thrivers, you know, like they, they've survived the, the ordeal of incest. They have now done the intense work that very few of us want to do, thrive. You know, I mean, they, they actually, they, their soul comes back, the spark for living comes back, their passion for life comes back. And one of the reasons for that is that this long-held secret and this long-held rage and, sh- and, and shame in many cases and guilt in many cases, you know, has been lifted from them. And they move forward in life in this lightness that they never thought that they could experience again. And, and as you reiterated, and I'll say it one more time, when we go through something this horrific, this type of betrayal, we have to be willing to put the weeks and months into the work in order to get the benefits that will be life-lasting if you do the work. Well, absolutely, and, you know, you you called it when you said clearly incest um, victims are survivors, and if they take their life to the next level, they're thrivers. And so as a coach, it sounds like you help somebody who's been through trauma get better, and one of the ways you do that is to help them identify their anger identify the feelings that are deep inside because it's true and authentic and honest and it will help you grow if you appreciate it. So tell us some more techniques that you use with incest survivors to get them past that anger, rage, and unfortunately depression. Oh, well, you know, when, when we talk about the survivors of any form of incest, uh, 
you know, they're, they're, I have not personally worked with a mother's son, but I have another friend of mine who's also a counselor that has, and we will share stories back and forth to help each other. Here's something that's difficult, Carol, for a lot of, of people, survivors of incest, is that because it's a, uh, a mother or father figure, a lot of times they have a hard time accessing their own anger and rage. Women have a super hard time accessing anger and rage, and they will come up with, well, you know, my dad was molested by his father. They will come up with all kinds of sometimes truths, sometimes guesses, so that they don't have to access that anger. On, on a mm-hmm. side note, and, we, you know, we say this all the time in the world of counseling, um, an, an angry man is just a man who's angry. An angry woman is a crazy bitch. And that image in society is so strong. Little girls aren't supposed to show, throw fits of anger and rage. Little boys might get away with it, and they may be reprimanded, but if a little girl does it, it's shut down immediately. And as a, as a session, a counseling session I just did tonight with a woman who's going through a divorce, this is our second week of working together, and I, I said to her last week, you know, I want you to do some accessing of anger. You know, your husband had promised that you, were ha- you had a very tough 10-year health battle. Your husband promised he would be there throughout the whole, whatever it took, he was going to be there. He told her this, like, at year number nine. And the week after he told her to quit her job because it was stressful and he thought that might be complicating some of her health issues, seven days later he walks in the house, hands her divorce papers, and says, sign here. Now, seven days before he had just said, I don't care how many more years it takes for us to get you well. I'm here for the long run. Seven days later he divorces her. So, I said to her last week, let's get in and look at some of your anger. And she said, no, I don't have anger. I just wish him the best. Now, that same thing has happened with incest survivors that I've worked with, where they said, you know, I'm not really that mad. It happened 20 years ago, David. It's not that big of a deal. While they've had nothing but dysfunctional relationships, addictions, low self-confidence, low self-esteem because of this event, and I'll give them these exercises, Carol, in writing to help them access the anger. And my client tonight, just before you and I got on the radio, just seven days ago, who told me she had no anger at her husband who was divorcing her, seven days later after prompting her and telling her that it's okay to be angry, the letters that she read to me that we never give to the perpetrators. You know, we don't share if it's an incest survivor. We don't say write these letters and send them because the letters are just for therapy. And the woman, the young woman going through the divorce, when she read her letters of anger tonight, you know, it was real and it was deep. And she said to me at the end, I had no idea the anger was there. Now that's from a divorce. When we work with incest survivors, it's the same thing. We've got to continue to give them different avenues to access you know, and, and, and here's another one. One of the incest survivors I worked with, when I said, I want you to get into writing about your anger, she said, oh, no, 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 I'm not angry. I'm just really pissed off. 
Uh-huh. And so I and I said to her, you know, and and I'm 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 smiling with you right now, Carol. But I said to her, I go, what emotion? You know, we don't really normally call being pissed off an emotion. <laughs> you know, it's it's more of a slang mm-hmm. term, right? So I said, right. if your friend said to you that she was really pissed off, what emotion do you think she'd be talking about? And right there, her eyes lit up. And this was an incest survivor who looked at me and said, this is the first time, David, I can admit to you or anyone that I'm really angry, aren't I? And so, Carol, when, and, you know, and I just, oh, my heart flooded open for her because that is the opportunity then to start to heal. We can justify and rationalize because it's a family member or a favorite uncle that what they're doing was just a mistake and they didn't mean it even though it was repeated over and over. So we will try to justify and rationalize, especially women, so they don't have to access the anger because it's not ladylike to be angry. So we will go at every angle possible in order to help them access anger, and and it works. We have to be persistent, but it'll work. And once they can access those emotions, you know, we some of them that I mentioned earlier, rage, anger, resentment, and then going into the shame and the guilt that they've carried for years, we can start to see a breakthrough. But one thing I'll say to the listeners, too, that I believe is extremely important is that this just can't be talk therapy. This just can't be you go into a counselor's office once a week and share these events and then you walk out because you will feel better at some point if you talk about it. But we don't think that's enough to change someone who's gone through such a horrific betrayal. We really believe it's got to be put in writing, and here's the reason why. When you see in writing your rage, your anger, your disgust, your resentment, it finally becomes real. It cannot be compartmentalized anymore because you want to protect your mom and or your dad or your brother or sister or aunt or uncle. You you can't protect yourself from the reality. When it's in writing and you're putting down the specific instances that happened, There's no more compartmentalization. There's no more hiding the truth. It's out there, and now we've got to deal with it. And in our work, the way we deal with it is by repeating it over and over and over in writing until they get to the point of desensitization, which means they're almost bored with the writing. And when we get there, Carol, then I know my client is ready to try their first attempt at the forgiveness of the betrayer. That makes total sense. And you know, David, so many of my clients are sex addicts and partners, and they have experienced trauma on both ends. I mean, not all sex addicts have experienced some sort of molest or sexual inappropriateness, but oftentimes that is part of it. And so they don't make sense of it, and yet they reenact that trauma over and over and over again. Same thing with the partners. Oftentimes, they've been sexually abused as a child, and they end up in a situation with a man 
who's a sex addict and has a component of sexual abuse in his past that then reenacts itself in their family. So now let me ask you something, because obviously this is a specialty that I work with. What type of a person is more likely to initiate this type of a relationship? Wow, that's a great question. Well, the number one form of incest that still is at the top um, is going to be a father-daughter uh, type of relationship, but not far behind is brother-younger-sister. And what we find with the brother-younger-sister <clears throat> is that many times the older sibling, the brother in this case, will have been sexually molested by another family member. But sometimes, Carol, it starts out just like it does with little kids playing doctor, where the, there is this inquisitiveness and there's an openness, and because the family members, the brother, sister, are in such close contact, and I'll tell a story of one of my clients right now in this situation, is that that inquisitiveness that starts out as, as playing doctor, well, when you have a, a neighbor or a friend that you're playing doctor with, at night they go home. But let me tell you the story of uh, uh, one of my clients is a woman whose older brother started this with actually one of his uh, best friends. So the older brother was 15, and this little girl was 10. And the older brother and his male friend had been looking through a Playboy magazine when the sister came in the room and saw them. Well, immediately he shut the door. And he said, don't mention anything to mom and dad, but we want you to look at these these pages with us. So this little 10-year-old girl said at first she felt very uncomfortable, very anxious, very nervous that her brother was making her look at nude pictures of women. When the, the friend of this older brother went, went to go home that night, well, this brother and sister shared a bedroom. So when the lights went out, he once again brought the magazine out and said to her, not the exact words, but this is who I'm going to be with one day. Let's pretend you're her, I'm the man, I'm the husband. Now, because they lived in the same room and slept in the same room, this led every night to this little girl being, quote, trapped in a room with someone who happened to be sexually abused. She finds out years later her brother, who was five years older, was sexually abused by an uncle. So he already was behind the eight ball in regards to what was going on with his body, testosterone-wise, puberty-wise. She actually went into puberty herself at 10. Her curiosity was raised. And because they were in the same room, this went on for three years. It didn't stop until he went away to college. Now, over the years, what did she do? She chose one physically abusive man after another, and then she became a sex addict herself. And how she was introduced to me was listening to a radio show. This is probably 12, 14 years ago, hearing me talk about the relationship between older brothers and younger sisters, sex addiction and incest. That led her to contacting me 
And it was the first time in 25 years that she was willing to look at her addiction to sex, her addiction to alcoholism, and her addiction to emotionally abusive men. When we look at how do all those things fit together, the world of addiction is ripe with people who have been sexually molested, who become addicts or alcoholics, and then they keep that family cycle going, as you, well, so you, you know so well, Carol. Once it starts, the alcohol frees them from the shame, guilt, anger, rage, allows them to continue in these, these um, relationships that are incredibly unhealthy, and the cycle continues. Now, with her, what was quite remarkable as well is that at the end of about nine months of working together, she decided that she was going to confront her brother and talk to him. When I say confront, I should say discuss. Discuss the work that she and I had done together with him. Now, I don't know what the correlation was, but she ended up waiting six months. She decided she was going to do it, and then she waited six months. By the time she went to talk to him, he had been diagnosed with stage four cancer. So then she came back to me and said, is this the time? You know, is this the time for me to approach my brother and to talk to him about my forgiveness of him for what he had done when I was 10 to 13 years of age? She decided to broach. Yeah, it was so intense. And she decided, just like the other client, that she was going to sit down while her brother was in the hospital being treated for stage four cancer, she decided that she was going to sit down and have the conversation. But the conversation wasn't, you know, you were a jerk and how could you do this? The conversation was, I understand part of the story of our family's sexual addiction and incest. And I want you to know it's okay if you have anything to say to me because I forgive you. It, it was the biggest turning point for her. He broke down in the hospital crying, asking her for forgiveness that she had already given him. And then the next thing that happened, Carol, was just so beautiful, even though we're talking about this outrageous family betrayal. She had stopped drinking while her and I worked together. I had asked her to stop dating for 365 straight days until she had reached the core of forgiveness. And at the end of the year of no dating, no alcohol, and having this really incredible conversation with her brother, she had finally met the first healthy man of her life. And this was 10, 12 years ago. They're still together. She's still sober, still healed. And they have this outrageously beautiful relationship And when she came in to originally start doing the work, one of the things she was most afraid of was that she would Mm -hmm. never be healthy enough emotionally to have a worthwhile relationship with a man. Again, the end result of a lot of work and a lot of risk on her part. Yeah, a lot of work and a lot of risk, as well as a a belief in oneself. You know, you and I are both coaches, and we know that when somebody does good mental health, when they work on themselves and they externalize the feelings and they, they go for behavioral repair, 
then they're ready to believe in, in finding something in their life that is more congruent with what they want. And you and I both know that until they do that mental health work, they may sabotage each other, but when they really have done the work, they're open to getting the life that they deserve. And, you know, this is a story that just shows that this woman came from, from such darkness and made it her own. Absolutely. And, I, you know, for listeners that are wondering um, if, if they've been in one terrible, bad, unhealthy relationship after another, you know, it doesn't mean that everyone has been sexually abused and everyone has gone through incest. But, but let me show you another story that, that is, was very confusing for this client. This was a client from Australia that I worked with several years ago. And she contacted me not because she had ever remembered any incestual relationships when she was a child. She didn't remember anything that was that terrible. But she knew that there was something amiss because every man that she was with, it was a horrendous relationship. She had been married three times, children with three different men, um, and all of them were just relationships from hell. So we started working together, and we went back into childhood, and there really wasn't any, she could never remember any, you know, like um, touching. She couldn't remember anything that would lead her to be drawn to unhealthy men until I had her start writing. And here's again, when people start doing the written exercises, memories and thoughts from the subconscious mind can come to the surface because writing slows down the conscious mind. So if you're just doing talk therapy or talk coaching, there's a lot of things in the subconscious, Carol, that can just stay stuck there, compartmentalize. We push them to a side. But when you start writing about your childhood, what you remember that you love, what you remember that feels uncomfortable or felt uncomfortable, because you're slowing the conscious mind down with writing, you can't write as quick as you think or talk, there's opportunities mm-hmm. for thoughts from the sub- subconscious to come to consciousness. So as she's writing about all these things in childhood in Australia that she loved, then there was this one block, and it had to do with family reunions. And as she wrote more and more, she started to remember an uncle. And in every family reunion, it was getting stranger and stranger to her, which she was remembering. The very first family reunion she could remember, and she was just a little girl, I'm going to say six, seven years of age. She remember feeling uncomfortable with the way her uncle looked at her. He never said anything, but every time she would walk by, it was just she got these vibrations that were just weird. And then a year goes by, and the uncle comes back, and he started saying things that she felt uncomfortable with, talking about her dress and the bows in her hair, but not in a way that felt good. And she couldn't put her finger on it in her writings, but she knew that there was something amiss here. And then as she went down another two or three family reunions, she remembered that when he came into the house, she intuitively hid underneath her bed. And so everyone's outside and she goes into the house and then she sees her uncle coming in after her and she went into her bedroom and hid. Now, 
she didn't have a reason to do it, a logical reason other than what he, how he looked at her and the words he said. And the next thing she knew, he caught her underneath the bed and pulled her up and laid in bed with her. She knew it was wrong. She didn't know what to do because it was everyone's favorite uncle. Now, to sort of jump tracks for a minute, it's not unlike what's happened in the, with the Catholic priests and the Catholic bishops in our country. And most recently, I believe his name is Bishop McCafferty, who was, has been accused um, by many young boys now in their 50s of sexual abuse, and he is a pedophile, and how he was the best friend of the family. So the mom and dad trusted him with their young son, who came out in the New York Times three months ago saying that this man had basically chased him all over the country, and he never had the strength to stop him, even as an adult, because he was the best friend of the family. Well, going back to my Australian client, she couldn't tell anyone that the favorite uncle in the family had trapped her in her bedroom and had laid in bed and touched her inappropriately. That was the last family reunion that he came to. She never spoke a word to anyone. Now she's in her 50s, and we're going through the work together, and everything started to make sense to her, Carol. Like, after that, why she started choosing the men she chose, why she never reported any of the men she dated or the boys she dated who had violated her, it all went back to this silence, this secrecy, that this is what she deserved. And as we're doing the work, she said, I must not deserve anything better because that's how my uncle treated me and my uncle was the favorite uncle in the family. So this cycle of how she didn't deserve anything other than being abused started when she was a little girl with an uncle and continued into her 50s until we did the work together. And, you know, again, no matter what the age of a survivor, they don't know that they have permission to share this kind of information with others, to keep themselves safe, to set up boundaries. And that's, that's what the show is all about. It's teaching people that you have the right to your own body, to your own mind, and to your own interaction. And, you know, one of the things that you said, David, is that obviously this was a woman who wasn't quite sure how to combat um, this relationship because he was a favorite. And, and you know she felt like she wouldn't be believed. So what do you think someone should do if there's a relationship in their family where there's sexual abuse and they're afraid to share the information? you got about one minute to share the answer to that. Okay. The very first thing I'd say is go to a professional, um, you know, a a coach that has experience, a counselor that has experience. Go to a women's shelter. Uh, If you're a woman, go to a women's shelter and express to professionals that you're not sure what to do with this and you're not sure how to heal or who to report or who not to report. Um, 
you know, go to the police. If you know it's wrong and you don't have any question whatsoever, go to the authorities. One of the greatest problems that we have is that because of shame and guilt and family cycles, these cycles continue on generation after generation. And I think that we need to come out as soon as we feel something is uncomfortable and share it with authorities that have the power to do something. You know, in the world of counseling and coaching, there have been times that we have encouraged the client to go directly to the police. And we would do it again in a heartbeat as a form of protection. So don't hold it in. Don't wait. You know, it's so sad to see some of the stories in the press where people wait 30, 40, 50 years to come forward. So we should learn from them and come forward quicker. Now, it takes a strong individual to do that, Carol, but that's the type of show you're leading. That's the work you do is empowering people to go into their strength. It's the same work that I do. Absolutely. And, David, so I so appreciate you educating our folks today because we do. We have sex addicts in recovery. We have partners in recovery. Trauma reenactment is a part of their life, and they've been through incest. Hey, how can people get a hold of you if they want to coach with you, either to heal the wounds or to take their life to the next level? Oh, Carol, yes, I encourage everyone that would like some help to reach out to me via the website talkdavid.com, T-A-L-K-David.com. Just go to talkdavid.com, send us an email. You know, we have all kinds of free material on the website. They can sign up for our daily video boost, our text club, to give them a boost in self-confidence and self-esteem. And then if they'd like to pursue some of the healing that we've been doing for 30 years now, just email us via talkdavid.com. Absolutely. And I'm telling you, this is a man who has been endorsed a million people. I mean, my favorite, Wayne Dyer has endorsed him. Jenny McCarthy um, has endorsed him. And his last book, which is a bestseller, Folk Lay Your Goals, The Proven Guide to Huge Success, A Powerful Attitude and Profound Love is a must-read. So, David, thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, Carol, I always love being with you, and I look forward to doing it again. All right. You have a great day. Okay. Bye now. And that was David Essel, and he really has made it his mission not only to help heal you, but also to take your life to the next level. He's, a, he's verified through Psychology Today as one of the top counselor and life coaches in the USA, and he's verified through Marriage.com as one of the top relationship counselors and coaches in the world. He does accept new clients at www.davidessel.com. Dot com. And that's it for tonight's show. You know, I want you to understand the trauma that people have experienced. And one out of every three females and one out of every ten reported cases for males are incest-related. Take your life to the next level. We'll see you next week for more sex help with Carol the Coach. <laughs>